Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James Bajon, and Jeffrey Myers are going to discuss the genealogies of Moses and Aaron from Exodus chapter 6. Before we launch in, we wanted to remind you about our Theopolis Fellows program. This program is a limited residency program where students study in Birmingham in July and January in person and gather virtually online for seminars from August to December. This is an introductory but a very comprehensive curriculum designed to initiate church leaders into the Theopolitan vision. This is our flagship program at Theopolis, and for more information, you can check the link down there in the show notes. Also keep in mind that this may not be for you specifically. It could be that you are a pastor or church leader, and you see other folks in your church who would benefit from this training. So with that in mind, please check out the information about the program there in the show notes, and we look forward to hearing from you. With that, we really want to thank you for listening to this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James Bajon, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the genealogies of Moses and Aaron in Exodus chapter 6. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James Bijan. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background helping us stay on course and make sure that our Recording is uh, smooth and seamless, as it always is. Uh, we've been doing a series on the genealogies of the Bible, and we have covered the genealogies of the book of Genesis, uh, and we're moving this week into the genealogy in Exodus 6, which is the final genealogy in the Pentateuch. It's the climax of the genealogies, uh, and significantly, it ends with uh, Levi and then Levi's descendants and Levi's descendants specifically leading up to Aaron and Aaron's descendants. So the, the genealogies of the Pentateuch are uh, begin, of course, with Adam, but then they climax with the priest and the priests who are going to be genealogically qualified for the rest of uh, Israel's history. Uh, one of the issues that we left, uh, uh, left uh, in the background uh, when we looked at Genesis is the meaning of one of the recurring terms that's used in the book of Genesis. The, term, the Hebrew term is Toledoth, and it's used 10 times in Genesis translated as generations or something along those lines. And it often introduces the genealogies we've been looking at, but to the best of our recollection, we haven't discussed that term. Uh, and uh, before we started recording, uh, Jeff Myers raised the question uh, uh, about uh, what that might mean and how that might fit in. It comes up here in Exodus 6 as well. Uh, in verses 16 and 19, at least, there's uh, uh, references, to, uh, uses of that term. So, Jeff, you want to state your question and uh, offer some possible answers to it? Well, the question I had was, um, it seems as if this word Toledoth has different meanings depending on its usage, which is somewhat pedestrian comment, obviously. But uh, at some places, like in Genesis 5, 1, it's associated with a book, a written account, a sofer. And um, in other places, it uh, it seems just to be a reference to um, a genealogy. Sometimes it comes before uh, as a heading. Sometimes it comes afterwards. And one of the big questions that's debated in Genesis is whether the Toledoths that are the seven Toledoths that are mentioned there um, have to do with um, whether whether that term refers to a heading or to 
a colophon to a, a ending. And it's, it's. Uh, I'm just wondering if there anybody has any thoughts on that. I'll take a stab at, at one part of that question. Um, I'm just clarifying the question to start with, and, and part of your question is the, is the sources about the sources of the Book of Genesis, and about the theory that the Book of Genesis is compiled from pre-existing written sources, and that those Toledoths are actually they, they were they were documents that in some form existed prior to the Book of Genesis and were incorporated into the Book of Genesis later. So that would be one specific way to ask the question. But I, I've, always, I've taken the uh, term Toledoth to be a, a heading in the book of Genesis. And part of that is a kind of etymological suggestion about the meaning of the term. Uh, it's related to Yalad, which is to, to give birth or to beget. These are, the things that, these are the things that Adam begot. These are the things that Seth begot. These are the things that, uh, these are the things that Isaac begot. So it's, it's uh, pointing ahead to the things that are coming which include, in some cases, uh, the, uh, the the beginning people, but also the 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 lives and actions of the uh, characters of Genesis are also part of what they beget. So I've, I've taken it in that that way. I know that there it can be taken in the other way. That one of the one of the counter examples seems to be its first use in Genesis two. These are the generations of uh, heaven and earth. But I think even that can be taken as uh, as a heading with the same kind of connotation that what you're looking at in Genesis two and three are the, the things that heaven and earth begat. Adam is a uh, one begotten by heaven and earth, by the, the mother earth that the Lord forms into man. And then by the heavenly God who breathes into his nostrils, a breath of life. So uh, even that one, I think can be taken in this, in this perspective idea. It's a, it's a heading rather than a conclusion. That's, that would be my, that would be my argument. As a heading, sometimes it seems to lead into a genealogy, but other times it just goes straight into a narrative, um, which suggests, again, a bit more looseness in the way that the term is used, um, that there isn't, that there is a bit of flexibility in how it can be deployed. Right. And, and I mean, in, in Exodus 6, which is what we're looking at this time, this is, um, it comes at the end of a list of names. In verse 16, these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. But you've all already seen the, sorry, that, that, is, that, is, uh, that is going into a list of uh, Levi's sons. I was misreading it, sorry. So there, there too, it's uh, according to their generation. Then it talks about the, the ones who descend from Levi. James, do you have any thoughts on the, on the question about Toledoth? I don't, I'm afraid, no. <laughs> <laughs> well then, <laughs> we were depending on you. Um, well, Peter, back to one of the things you mentioned in an introduction uh, in Exodus 6, uh, the genealogies in Genesis, in the Pentateuch, really culminating in the priesthood. Um, it's fascinating that this, pre this uh, priestly uh, genealogy is sandwiched between two statements um, about Moses being of uncircumcised lips in verse 12 of chapter 6. And in verse 30 uh, of chapter, I'm sorry, verse 12, chapter, yeah, verse 30. And we tend to think of the priesthood as just manipulating things, which they do, of course, and uh, sacrifices and, and all that. But there's something here about the priest being uh, those that speak, speak for Yahweh. And it's almost like out of Israel emerges mm -hmm. a new flesh out of uh, uncircumcised, uncircumcised lips emerges a new flesh, a new, uh, new lips 
to speak God's word in the uh, persons mm-hmm. of Moses and Aaron. Right. And th- that would be reinforced by the conclusion uh, at the end of the genealogy. Uh, it comes to uh, Aaron, Aaron's descendants, but then it says, it was the same Moses and Aaron to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel. Verse 27, these are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the emphasis is on the two of them as spokesmen for Yahweh. Continuing that connection between verses 12 and 30, I think it's interesting when you compare the two verses that this um, critical statement of Moses is, is dropped out. So whereas initially he says, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me, and then goes on to say, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? At the end, at verse 30, that, that criticism is is dropped. And I wonder if part of the uh, purpose of that genealogy is to kind of anchor Moses into um, Israel's um, family tree and to show a kind of reconciliation. He's been rejected to some extent by Israel and he's gone off to Midian and started a family there. And I wonder if this is um, showing just a rapprochement and a, and a um, conciliation between him uh, and the people who he's about to lead forward. We don't actually know that Moses knew that Aaron was his brother um, until chapter four. It's possible that he didn't know that Aaron was his brother. Um, and so including him into that family tree might be very clearly stating that connection between them. Hmm. Alistair, doesn't that seem unlikely, though, given Exodus 2 and the conniving that Moses' mother and sister uh, uh, did in order to get him taken up by Pharaoh's daughter? And then the fact that she becomes his nurse seems that there's a close relationship between the family. I mean, there's there's a close relationship, but the question would be, does his mother actually let him know that she is actually his mother or does she hide that fact from him? And then when he's told that Aaron's coming towards him and that Aaron is his brother, um, that's the first time that he realizes that this kid that presumably he grew up with or had associations with growing up is actually a relative. I was want to go back to James's comment about the um, kind of uh, Moses incorporation into the into Israel and the genealogy kind of bridging that gap between Moses, who is um, uh, not not being heard, and Moses, who is now confronting Pharaoh. And the, the, the effect of that, James, seems to be that uh, Moses is, as you say, kind of reincorporated into Israel, but then becomes a representative to Israel. So in the second case, when he's speaking to Pharaoh, he still speaks about his himself having uncircumcised lips, but now he's doing that. He's speaking to Pharaoh as a representative of the people. That representation, it's, it's not Moses versus the people, Moses ver- and also Moses versus Pharaoh, but it's Moses and the people together versus Pharaoh. And the genealogy is a way of giving Moses that, that, uh, that representational role. Which would have priestly aspects to it, I guess. Right, right. Just the, looking at the genealogy itself, it looks to me like there's a, a kind of a repeated triads that run through the whole genealogy. I'm not sure this works entirely, but you start out with uh, brief genealogies of Reuben and Simeon, uh, the two older brothers of Levi, and uh, they're just given uh, their their own sons, not uh, not descendants after them. And then verse 16 begins, Levi, of course, Jacob has additional sons then beyond those three, but you have just the, the three oldest sons of Jacob that are listed here. And then in verse 16, the, the sons of Levi are three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, who are going to be the 
the heads of the three different clans of the Levites that care for the tabernacle in, in the book of numbers, they're going to be assigned different portions of the tabernacle to care for and to, uh, and to carry. Uh, and then as you go on, you have uh, three sons of Kohath in verses 20 through 22. And then you seem to have three sons of Korah uh, that follow that uh, in verse 24. So it seems like you have a, a series of triads that are organizing the chapter and uh, give it, give it a kind of numerical coherence. There also seems to be a further numerical detail in the fact that um, Levi lives to 137 years and Amram the same. Amram as the father of um, of um, Moses and Aaron is someone who represents the true Levite, perhaps, having the same number of years in his life mm. as his forebear Levi. Well, why those three tribes are mentioned alone is, is unusual. This is coming back to your comment peter um i mean the only thing i could think of that connects them is is some kind of i mean reuben was guilty of some sort of indiscretion and and then he's cut out of the um blessings simeon and levi are involved in the slaughter of um uh, the shechemites and seem to lose their place and i wonder if they're those three are picked out in particular because i don't know their their redemption is in mind and Mm. because the exodus is almost kind of a, a, an event horizon and it's then a, a new start for them afterwards. Yeah. Interesting. So d- definitely a new start for Levi. Um, uh, Levi is scattered among the people, uh, among the tribes, but he's um, scattered and given a, a particular vocation. I'm not sure how that, um, how that works for Reuben and Simeon, but you're right. These are all the, these are the three fallen sons who are at least as far as, uh, preeminence are surpassed by Judah, the fourth son, or by Joseph, who is a later son. So um, that, that is interesting. You have that common history that uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, the fallen sons. But yeah, as you say, there's a kind of redemptive trajectory to Levi. There seems to be, in the absence of the other sons, maybe a focus upon the firstborn status um, and the tribe of Levi eventually substitute for the firstborn of Israel in the book of Numbers. And so I wonder whether Mm -hmm. that's the background of what's taking place here. It seems worthy of note that we have some ages here. And um, uh, who do we have? We have um, Amram, Koath, and Levi, isn't it, who are, um, we're told how old they are when they die. That sort of brings to mind some of the previous genealogies to me there, there is in genesis 5 for instance we have all the ages um listed in the line in which god is unfolding his purposes and, and working out and they almost become the markers of time and by contrast there is the canites who as we say develop quickly but they're kind of left behind in the flood and i guess the same thing happens to egypt here that whole um or at least a number of uh, genealogies in Egypt's line are, are left behind the, the wrong side of the Red Sea and, and they're wiped out. But these uh, aged people continue uh, through the Red Sea. Yeah, I think the ages also uh, raise a question about the chronology that's implied here. Um, if you total up all three of those ages, I think it comes up to 490 years total if you're just putting them end to end. But of course, that's not the reality of things because. Um, the fathers and sons would have overlapped for a period, perhaps a period of uh, a significant number of years. 
Uh, and the, one of the chronological difficulties that comes up here is the reconciliation of this genealogy with statements about the length of Israel's stay in Egypt. Because this genealogy traces only four generations from Levi to Aaron and Moses. But in uh, uh, Exodus 12, we're told at the end of Exodus 12, we're told that the uh, Exodus takes place 430 years after Israel had gotten into Egypt, uh, verse 41 of chapter 12. It came about the, at the end of 430 years, the very day that all the hosts of, it, of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So it looks like a 430-year period of, of uh, sojourn in Egypt. There's no way that these, these, the ages of these characters adds up to that in actual time. The, the ages put end to end surpass that, but are, are more than that. But it's, uh, it's not the actual time. And, and Paul kind of complicates things further when he talks in Galatians about the period of time between Abraham uh, and the law being a 400-year period. Or does he say 430-year period, maybe? Uh, so the, there, the, the starting point is not the arrival in Egypt, but it's the life of Abraham. And the concluding, the terminus ad quem of the, uh, of the time period is the, is the exodus or, or the giving of the law at Sinai. So you have a, you have a chronological difficulty. Is it, I think the common idea that uh, Israel spent 400 years sojourning in Egypt, but the, the genealogy itself seems to belie that. But then these numbers elsewhere complicate things and seem to, especially in Exodus 12, seem to indicate that it was in fact a 400-year period. Any, any thoughts on that chronological challenge? None beyond the fact that um, numbers are only mm. found, ages are only found within the line of Levi here. Um, Simeon and Reuben only go to one generation, whereas Levi has the four generations afterwards. And on that front, it's um, also interesting, as far as I can think, this is the last genealogy in scripture with the ages of persons included. Um, and they're, again, only in Levi. Mm. Is there any significance, Alistair, uh, to that, that when we get to Numbers numbers 3, it's going to be the Levites who replace all the firstborn of the Hebrews of Israel? And here, uh, the, first, the first sons, Reuben and Simeon, go to one generation, but Levi continues on. Yes, I think that would be and the line I would take on it. I'm not sure about the genealog or about the chronological question though. Yeah, what, one possibility to, to reconcile this, it, this leaves us with some tension, but one possibility is that we take the genealogy as the kind of the fixed point of our consideration. You have four generations, which is uh, given the ages are not going to be 400 years. And Paul seems to be uh, starting the period of sojourning, if you will, not with Jacob going down to into Egypt, but with Abraham. So it's uh, you have to you have to take a, a non-intuitive reading of Exodus twelve. It seems like it's saying the very the end of four hundred years to the very day when Israel leaves is four hundred thirty years to the very day after they arrived there. Uh, but if you if you think of the of a period of sojourning as including Abraham, then about half of that time is covered by. Uh, Israel's sojourn, actual sojourn in Egypt. The rest of the time is Israel being, or Abraham and Abraham's family being in uh, the land of Canaan, uh, which would be under some kind of Egyptian hegemony at the, at that time. They're not enslaved in Egypt, but you could loosely talk about that as a part of their sojourning. And then the Exodus takes place 430 years after that. 
Uh, and that would mean that the actual actual time in Egypt is more like uh, 200 to 220, which would be, that's more likely a time period for these, for these generations. Uh, that's, that's one way to recall, but it doesn't, it doesn't, as I say, it doesn't get rid of all the tensions, especially with Exodus 12, but that's, that's one, one direction. Another part of the puzzle, but also something that might help is the way that um, Genesis 15 talks about them returning in the fourth generation. Yeah, right. So, so that would uh, that would uh, support the the Exodus six genealogy as being a kind of a, a kind of a fixed point for the for the time passage, the time period that they're there. There seems to be a concern in the genealogy with legitimacy that this is a line of people who will hold office, and so people like Phineas are mentioned who are important later on in the story in Numbers chapter twenty five in his case, but. The characters that are listed in the line of Levi are not just um, a line of people who are passing something on from generation to generation. These are families of people who will be involved in the administration of the worship of the tabernacle and later the temple. And so having legitimate ancestry and pedigree, as it were, helps to express their part or the um, right that they have to that ministry. And so this is concerned with legitimacy, not just with um, a chronology or with uh, a line of succession. Right, which is, which is uh, something that reappears after the exile when Israel returns from, uh, from Babylon. And they have to, the Levites have to establish their genealogical connection with Aaron in order to continue ministering. They have to, they have to show that legitimacy and of course, you have that the contrast in in Hebrews seven between uh, that genealogical, or as Hebrews seven says, that fleshly qualification for priesthood. Uh, that's a that's associated with the old covenant, and is surpassed by the coming of a new covenant, where we have a priest who's not not qualified by flesh. As far as genealogy is concerned, Jesus is not a legitimate priest, but is qualified for priesthood by the power of an indestructible life. Uh, Hebrews says. Uh, which I think is a reference to his, the indestructible life of his resurrection. So we have a, where he, where he enters not into an, a new fleshly mode of life, but to a glorified mode of life in the spirit. So you have that, that contrast and that, that, that gives a certain angle on the geneal- genealogies of the Old Testament that they're associated with this old covenant, uh, which is, uh, li- and particularly with the priesthood of the old covenant, which is linked up with genealogy and legitimacy by flesh. Uh, and that's um, going to be uh, superseded by uh, a new covenant that, where that's not the that's not the ground for priestly ministry. I was just going to say, I wonder if the ages of the Levites are mentioned here precisely to um, foreground that that these are in fact lives which end. Hmm. Right, because that's part of the point of Hebrews seven is that you have a priest who is not like the earlier priests. Jesus continues to live. You don't have to keep replacing the priest. One other detail that I find interesting here is that within um, the case of Amram, Aaron, and um, Eliezer, the wives are also mentioned and their genealogy is gestured towards. That's not something that we found in the genealogies to this point and I think probably is worthy of reflection. I I, I have a sort of obscure numerological comment to make. And if I don't share it on this podcast, I can't think of anywhere else I can. (laughs) So if if you could bear with me a little bit. I mean, um, I think to wider contextually, there are lots of interesting um, uh, 
repetitions going on. So there is a, a big narrative of how Pharaoh and Yahweh come into confrontation with one another and particularly that the hand or, or the arm of pharaohs meets the outstretched arm of of the lord and there is also sort of a battle over pharaoh's heart and these things seem relevant the word hand occurs 52 times in the relevant chapters chapters 3 to 15 and the word heart occurs 26 times so half that the last time being when um, they're drowned in the heart of, of the Red Sea. And that emphasis on uh, the number 26 then plays out. It's the um, gematrial value of the name Yahweh, and so it comes up in various places. It's also the gematrial value of of glory, um, or the, the sort of in Hebrew, the consonants KBD, you could say, which comes out throughout the text. It's It describes the heaviness of Pharaoh's heart and the way it's made heavy and the heaviness of the plagues and so forth. And obviously both those terms, Yahweh and glory, come together in the name Jochebed. It's sort of, you know, you know, Yahweh combined with Cheved. And again, that's relevant because she's the twenty-sixth person listed in this genealogy. And actually her sons Aaron and Moses are the twenty-sixth generation from Adam. We have twenty to Abraham and then we have Isaac Jacob, Levi, Kohath, Moses, and so um, uh, sorry, Kohath, Amram, and then finally Moses. So th- there seems some uh, some deliberate patterning going on here. I'm pleased there is a place mm. where that sort of thing can be mentioned because it's amazing. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> That's why you come to the Theopolis podcast <laughs> to hear just that kind of obscure numerological speculation. <laughs> yeah, I, I came across the. I think the first time a 26 gematria was, I got alerted to it was a monograph on the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs uses the word Dodi 26 times, my beloved, which uh, suggests a, a link with Yahweh. And then uh, there's uh, 26 patterns all over the Psalms. Uh, uh, the verse verse numbers sometimes, but also word counts are variations of 26, and those are patterned in various ways. The work of CJ, I would pronounce it Labushain. I'm, I'm told that that's not how you pronounce it when it's South African, but uh, he's done uh, detailed uh, numerological studies of the Psalms, and they're available online. And he's he points out regularly that the number twenty six is a key a key number in the way that the Psalms are set up. So, thank you for pointing that out, James. That was uh, fascinating stuff. <laughs> my, my work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever um, symbolism or numerology is here, uh, typology. Uh, the, all these genealogies kind of remind us, well, they don't kind of, they do remind us that these are real people. This stuff really happened. Um, Moses and Aaron had roots. Uh, this is not, and I guess this is more for modern Americans, maybe even modernists. We tend to mythologize all this and forget that it's actual flesh and blood history. So, you know, we even mentioned Jesus a few minutes ago, and indeed he's not a priest according to the fleshy requirements of the Levitical law. But at the same time, he is flesh and blood and he has a genealogy. And I think it's important to remember that, that these people are real, they're genuine, uh, they lived. And as we mentioned earlier, the Levites under judgment, basically, for what happened in Genesis 34. But now there's a lot of there's there's God's faithfulness and there's God's grace here in this passage as well. Yeah. So in a sense, these are these genealogies of the Old Testament are giving us the history of the flesh of Jesus. This is the flesh that Jesus is going to assume that has this 
this uh, background starting with Adam and Seth and going through Abraham and so on. This would be a good uh, project in Christology, Jeff, uh, to do a genealogical Christology and see what uh, what that might illuminate. I think we're also seeing some of the fibers that connect different stories in Scripture. So within the genealogies, different things that might be detached in time are connected together so it becomes more clear that they are part of a single story. To that point, Alistair, in verse 23 here, um, Aaron takes as his wife, Eli Shaver, who's the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Narshon. And so we, we have a, a um, uh, Narshon who is the uh, descendant of Aminadab. And I think that may well the, be the Aminadab and Narshon in Jesus's genealogy. So the Judahites. So there, there may be even this priesthood um, has a, um, a Judahite input to it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.